welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today, I have Drs. Rafael Fonseca from the Mayo Clinic and Aaron Goodman from UCSD debating smoldering multiple myeloma. Multiple myeloma is a form of blood cancer, small bone marrow cancer, where there's really excess uh, cancer cells. We call them the plasma cells that produce protein that we detect in the blood. And I noticed that both of these physicians were debating the concept of treating smoldering myeloma early in the course of the disease. And that argument was going back and forth on Twitter. So I've asked them to come on the show so we can really have a long debate, a debate where we don't really get held hostage to a 280 characters. This is rather important. It is really impossible to debate an important topic, a scientific topic on social media. It is much better to debate this on an actual podcast. And that's really why we have this, uh, this show. Now, the one thing about this issue of smoldering multiple myeloma that's really rather important is smoldering multiple myeloma is not active disease. It is almost, you know, again, it's a disease, but it's not really causing any trouble. And that's why there's this disagreement. Should we treat? Should we not treat? Should we treat early or not? So I hope you'll enjoy this debate. I have gotten you hopefully used to the fact that we always like to bring in dialogue and civil debate to Healthcare Unfiltered. Before I air the episode that I taped with Aaron Goodman and Rafael Fonseca, I'll plug the show. You know where to find Healthcare Unfiltered on all podcast outlets, but please subscribe to the show. You can rate the show. You can refer a friend or a colleague. You can write a review. And for that, I'm grateful. Without further ado, Drs. Rafael Fonseca and Aaron Goodman on Healthcare Unfiltered Debating, Smoldering Multiple Myeloma. Okay, folks. Well, this is, uh, you know, like you are used on Healthcare Unfiltered, we are, we love debates here. We feel that debates are really important to bring two uh, different views of the same topic. And we have a re two recurring guests um, uh, and friends of the show. So really appreciate taking time of your busy schedules. Uh, we are taping this uh, sometime on a Sunday evening. This will air in a few weeks from now. And we are going to tackle the issue of smoldering multiple myeloma. I have Drs. Rafael Fonseca and Aaron Goodman. We'll start with our usual introductions. Rafael Fonseca, who are you? Thank you, Chadi. A pleasure to be here again with you. So Rafael Fonseca, I'm at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Um, I you know, hold a number of, of roles at Mayo, but most importantly, my life is devoted to the understanding and the treatment of myeloma patients. So I spent all my time in, in uh, related to my academic activities in myeloma clinical care, myeloma research, and so forth. And again, delighted to be back here with you. I've been at it for maybe now a little bit over 20 years, so, but it's just, it's just a fascinating field where we have seen all this progress over the last several years. Thank you, Rafael. And uh, we have also Dr. Aaron uh, Goodman, who, who goes by Papa Heem. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of liking this. I, you know, I, I still have not, by the way, gotten any gold star 
on the like you know he has like this papa gold thing when you get the question i still haven't gotten one once i get one i'm gonna stop guessing any of his questions papa him who are you well i'm uh i'm a hematologist a bone marrow transplanter at university of california san diego i kind of um i like saying i'm a bread and butter bone marrow transplanter hematologist i see everything from acute leukemias to um lymphomas car t and myeloma i would say full disclosure myeloma maybe represents 10% to 20% of my practice. Um, and it's not the only disease I think about, although lately I've been thinking about it a lot more. Um, and uh, I'm very involved in education, teaching the fellows and residents at the university. Great. So the topic of today's podcast is specifically smoldering multiple myeloma. And the question that is being posed to you both, do we treat smoldering multiple myeloma do we not treat smoldering multiple myeloma? There are many listeners who probably have no idea what smoldering multiple myeloma is or what multiple myeloma is. So I'll maybe ask Raphael to level set and explain what is that disease that we are telling our listeners about. Oh, thank you, Chatty. Well, you know, smoldering is interesting. It's a, it's a, a word that uh, primarily exists in the English language, which means like the burning coals in the background, right? It was first coined by Phil Gripe and, and uh, Bob Kyle in Rochester, where they observed patients who fulfilled criteria for myeloma, but yet had no complications and didn't require treatment. And patients could be monitored for many years. So uh, currently the term reflects to those patients that have a bit more than your standard MGUS. And as you know, we create arbitrary boundaries and you know, the, that arbitrary boundaries at 10% plasma cells uh, and also patients have a higher concentration of the serum protein uh, that would classify them as more than just the very early phase of a plasma cell clone, but not quite at the point that they have symptoms. And that's what we define as smoldering multiple myeloma. Historically, it was also called indolent myeloma. But that is, is so it's an in-between stage between the, you know, clearly defined benign stage of plasma cell neoplasms and the full aggressive form of the disease that we know simply as multiple myeloma. So it's it's a myeloma, but no symptoms. Like for me, right. but the term we use is it has no myeloma defining event, meaning more than symptoms because it could be laboratory abnormalities, complications arising because of of the growth of this myeloma cell. So historically, it was the absence of what we define as a craft criteria. So the patients that didn't have hypercalcemia, um, renal abnormalities, anemia, or evidence of bone destruction. And that has been expanded and probably we'll, we'll address that as, as we go through this conversation. But essentially patients who have an excessive amount, an abnormal amount of monoclonal plasma cells, but yet have no um, imminent or evident damage to their bodies. And Aaron, I presume that definition is, is a, I mean, you agree with that definition. I wanna make sure we have the proper definition of the disease. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't like calling it a disease, at least because for many it's not. Um, so, um, and I think of it as asymptomatic myeloma. There's evidence of the cancer cells or the cells in the bone marrow and the protein, uh, but no symptoms or, or end organ damage as Raphael pointed out. Okay. Raphael, are all, like when we, if we take, um, if we bring 10 patients with smoldering multiple myeloma, so they all have multiple myeloma, but they don't have any of this disease defining illness uh, criteria, like you mentioned, the crab and, and so forth. Are, could they all be different? Like, are there different shades of smoldering multiple myeloma? Or, you know what I'm trying to get? I'm trying to think, do all smoldering multiple myeloma behave differently, if you will? Like, you know, I think that the, the crux of the discussion here is if the disease is not symptomatic, 
and it's not causing any problem and the patient is doing okay, why do I need to treat a lab abnormality with a high protein? You're, you're, you're right, Chatty, And I, I think that's a fundamental point of, of what we're going to go through the, in, in this conversation, right? And essentially what we're asking ourselves is, you know, what is the value of proposing that someone starts treatment in a situation where they're asymptomatic and their, you know, laboratory work does not suggest any, any evidence of damage. So that's really at the, at the heart of what we would like to talk today. Um, I, I'll start by saying a couple of things. First of all, don't want to be like the guy who in, you know, in college and philosophy is like, can we really ever know anything, right? So, but I'm going to throw some complexity into how we think about, about uh, these matters. And related to your question, of course, every myeloma patient is, is, is different. Every smoldering myeloma patient is different. And I think one of the things that, I, that I'd like to start with by saying it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot easier to teach crap than it is to practice crap. So, you know, it's very easy to stand in a podium and I have this image in a beautiful crab and I show the four things, right? But then when is it that you really are seeing crab or, or like a crab emerging that then you have to say, you know, I'm, am I putting someone at risk by not being active and deciding to start treatment? That's a lot harder. And that's in the clinical practice, one of the challenges. I would say it's probably one of the most important, if not the most important decision that people face when they see a hematologist like us and they're saying, well, you know, should someone start treatment or not? And uh, the idea is that, yes, you know, through the data that has been aggregated through clinical trials and, you know, the various publications, as, as, as well as no doubt some, some, some um, you know, clinical expertise, you ultimately have to make a decision. Is this a person that would be better off considering treatment or not? And that's really the heart of, of, of what we would like to talk more about. Okay. So... Aaron, you get this patient who comes in who has smoldering multiple myeloma. Are there what what goes through your mind? Is I guess which how do you make a decision whether you need to treat that patient or not? Uh, or is that even a question on your mind ever? That if you have smoldering, maybe there's somebody within smoldering multiple myeloma that I may require therapy, or this this never crosses your mind. Yeah, I think, again, the heart of the conversation is, is the patient in front of me destined to develop symptomatic multiple myeloma with the morbidity associated with that illness, either a shortened life expectancy, uh, bad fractures, uh, kidney failure that's irreversible or a hypercalcemic crisis, those types of things. So if I had a crystal ball when I'm seeing those patients, knowing who's destined to get them in, you know, like soon, like in a few months, as opposed to 10 years, those would be patients that I'd probably want to treat. Why, why sit around and wait for these awful things to happen? But as I'll argue as we go through this discussion is that's not exactly crystal clear who those patients are. And uh, even if it were, what time that would happen. And if intervening early as opposed to just careful monitoring truly benefits these patients. So seems reasonable to me, Rafael. How, how do we decide? Like you get the patient in front of you. I think, yes, if you tell me that this patient is destined to progress in the next few months, I think nobody would argue, but Aaron contends that you can't really tell. Right. No. And, and, and you know, I, I think for the background, so our listeners understand what we're going through, we're not going through a black and white debate of saying, you know, A, you should always treat and B, every single smoldering myeloma patient should be treated, right? But it's more to walk ourselves through the process of are there some circumstances where you would consider the treatment of someone in such a situation? Uh, for background, I'll, I'll share with you. I actually myself have not started any patient on, on uh, treatment when they're smoldering. 
Um, but at the same time, and, and part of what I want to get to as well, too, is, but I, I have to admit, I, I scratch my head as well, too. I scratch my head thinking, you know, is, is it worthwhile to continue to wait? Or is there someone we're just on the verge of thinking that, you know, we're going to have to start treatment? And if that's the case, what's the benefit of, of waiting for a little bit longer? And that's, that's really the very, very hard conversation that we face when we see um, uh, this patient. So, you know, when, when, when one evaluates a patient with smoldering, I, I would argue, and I, you know, working with our fellows here, I say, you have to do a very in-depth analysis. First of all, you should never approach that evaluation in a simple nonchalant way, because it is, a, you know, the detailed observation that might point you into that patient that has significant risk of progression versus that patient that should get more reassurance of, of a lower likelihood of progression. And usually that includes, you know, very thorough workup with a standard laboratory test. Um, I personally believe that uh, most patients, unless there's a compelling reason who have a monoclonal gammopathy, even if they're suspected to be early benefit from the analysis of a bone marrow analysis, you know, more detailed analysis, just because, you know, just by proteins alone, you don't know if you're dealing with 9% plasma cells or 25% plasma cells, you simply can't. And that, that's going to change how we think about, about the disease, right? Uh, but when I see that patient and I, and I, and I talk to, to, you know, to patients in the clinic, there, there are two things that worry me. I, I wrote a paper a few years back that was called the clause of the crab. And what I mean by that is if you approach a crab, the crab has a dangerous part and a non-dangerous part, right? So anemia, hypercalcemia, we could care less. We can fix it. It's very simple. Renal disease. Now we have a marker, which is a serum-free light chain, which when it exceeds 100 milligrams per deciliter, it puts someone at significant risk for renal failure. So you can monitor that more closely. And we'll talk about the new criteria a little bit later. We don't have good markers for bone disease. So bone disease is a little bit of, of a retrospective evaluation of some damage that has been occurring for quite some time. And for me, that's those are the two claws of the crab, the, the, the renal failure and the bone lesions, and in particular, vertebral compression fractures. You know, uh, if you have someone who has a, a femur fracture, yes, yeah, it's, it's of course undesirable, but it can be fixed. And most people with surgery get back to normal. But you have someone who has multiple compression fractures and sometimes is destined to a lifelong of pain. So, so just being able to identify those patients that have those risks becomes of paramount importance. So are there ways, Aaron, to identify these folks uh, that may develop, I don't know, like serum free light chain, is a good uh, specific and it's a good sensitive marker. If it's high enough, then you are close enough to developing renal disease. Uh, is that what you do for these patients? Well, first I'll, I'll just say it also depends how these patients get to you. You know, um, if they come to you because some doctor ordered a lab that they shouldn't have ordered for really no reason, I actually argue that they don't really all need a bone marrow biopsy. Yes, you can't prove if they have 60% or 50% plasma cells without the bone marrow biopsy. But with that argument, then we should just be checking an SPEP light chain on everyone who walks into the room because I don't know if they have it too. So uh, I put that into context of how they ended up in my clinic. But I agree, someone who does end up in, with your clinic uh, with you know, an SPEP uh, with, a, with a, you know, four grams per deciliter, you know, something that's high, then yes, get to get the bone marrow biopsy um, and do a very careful you know, detailed history and examination, because what we're not talking about here in this discussion is if they have an M protein that's causing some sort of problem, maybe not myeloma, but amyloid or renal disease or neuropathy, that's a different story. And those are not smoldering patients, even though they don't have myeloma, those patients do have disease related to their pair protein and need treatment. So we're not talking about that, but that's a very important, uh, an electro I love giving uh, a thing that needs to be done in all these patients. But 
we will talk when you see these patients, you risk stratify. And I, I'll argue more that I think our current risk stratification schemas are not that great and they disagree with each other and they leave a lot more questions than answers. You know, there's three, well, there's now really one main risk crash, uh, stratification that we go through. It's the 2220 uh, by Rafael's Mayo group um, that looks at three parameters. They look at the light chain ratio. So if it's greater than 20 to one, uh, they look at the M spike, the quantification on the SPEP of greater than two grams per deciliter. Uh, and then they look at the plasma cell count in the bone marrow, uh, which is a plasma cell burden uh, greater than 20%. And if you have two of those or more, you're deemed to have high-risk smoldering myeloma. Uh, keep in mind, there's also the old Mayo 2008 criteria. There's the Spanish group criteria. There's cytogenetic risk factors. There's all these different uh, schemas uh, that can help us assess risk. Uh, but if you use the 2220, uh, which I think now in the myeloma community is what's being pushed, or at least it is in talks that I see, uh, those at high risk, uh, what, I think at two years, 50% of them, Raphael, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but at high risk, I think at two years, 50% progress. And then at five or 10 years, the majority do progress to symptomatic myeloma. So Raphael, tell us about this 2220, since you obviously, this is a criteria that you've been integral in developing. Sure. Well, you know, uh, so so the, the idea, first of all, let me just start by sort of the global statement. Um, I, I, I agree that we don't have a system that could tell you with a you know, with great degree of accuracy, who's going to progress and not. And, and, and there's, there's many limitations. Some limitations are intrinsic on how you develop these models. You know, I, I've done quite a bit of research and have had a grant funding to look at, you know, factors and risk of progression. And this is the, the, this is the waterloo for clinical and, you know, research, because you have to look at thousands of patients over many, many years, if you want to do so in a prospective fashion, right? So we have to make use of the data sets that are available. And, and, and fortunately, there's institutions like ours. And, and now there's larger data repositories that have been able to be used to try to formulate such predictive systems. In my mind, uh, there's, there's a few things I would like to see, but there's two big ones that I would like to see incorporated into the, you know, the systems. And, and hopefully that's the next wave of, of them being yeah, integrated into the decision-making process, right? Number one is that for smoldering myeloma, with few exceptions, there is rarely an urgency making a decision about, about the, the, the need for, for therapy initiation. So, um, and, and, and I say that with, with a caveat of what I said before about the bone disease, because you can be surprised. Everyone who practices myeloma has been surprised with a myeloma defining effect you didn't, you didn't ex, you know, anticipate. But in general, there's no, no big pressure. And when someone is declaring itself as active myeloma, it becomes pretty self-evident. So you do have time, and if you do have time, I think what the new what the models need to consider is the dynamics of the evolution of the clone over time. So I think that's that's critically important. So if you have a patient that you know you've just diagnosed, I think that the extra layer that should be brought up in the decision making is, well, if I can, let's monitor patients, and and if if the patient is showing a clear trend towards progression, then intervene and and, and do something right. So that's number one. The second one is. I think we can get a lot fancier. This doesn't apply only for small drains, pretty much for everything we do in medicine. I'm, I'm really tired of seeing, you know, variables being treated as, you know, dichotomous or, you know, categorical variables for, for what we do. I think, especially as we, we move into the world of big data, we have to get better with models that treat most things as continuous variables that give you, you know, better precision and how, how we can, how we can uh, predict. Now you have to start with some, I mean, in, 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 in um, you know, the truth is you have to start with something that would tell you 
you know, if I take a group of patients, can I predict what the risk of progression? And this, that, that's where this, you know, systems come, including the Spanish one as well, talking out at the percent of abnormal cells. So you would say, well, yeah, in the ideal world, you know, we have the, 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 you know, the precise way to know in the future whether the person is going to progress or not. In the real world, that's where we are. And that's the biggest challenge when we see these patients in the clinic. Um, I favor having more information than not. And that's, that's what I, you know, was alluding with, with the testing I do. But there, there's no system that, is, that can tell you everything. I mean, just take example genetics for myeloma, which I've worked all my life in genetics and fish, right? On the best case, they can predict about 30% of the clinical variability. They, the, the other 70% is random stuff, right? So it's better to know that but it's far from complete. And I think the same is true with a lot of this, uh, the systems that, that, you know, still, still leave room for improvement. And again, that's not to say, well, you guys don't know what to do. In fact, you know, this is laudable. I mean, great clinical research efforts to get us there, but they have to be understood with, with their limitations as they have. But is this 20 to 20 criteria used to decide to initiate therapy early on in uh, smoldering myeloma? Depends on how you want to use that statement. So if you look at the criteria, and as it was applied, for instance, at the most recent clinical trial, the, you know, the ECOG study, E3A06, it breaks patients into three risk categories, you know, the, the low, intermediate, and high. And, and applying that criteria to those patients that fell into that category is where you see the separation of those curves. So the argument that, that would be made is, yes, you could use that to decide which, which of those patients you know, would be candidates for, for this therapy. I think there's, there, are, there are enough nuances and concerns with the model that need to be addressed before you can be completely confident. And we're going to have a lot of patients that are going to have borderline values. In fact, I, you know, I share with you both slides I use for a debate with the MMRF. You can go easily one way or another, and you know, suddenly you're in intermediate risk and you're not in high risk anymore. Uh, so, of course, if, if you're away from those boundaries that are defined in a model by this, you can have a greater degree of certainty. But still, they don't capture everything, everything there is to be captured, like, you know, growth rate of the cells, the genetics of the cell, all those things need to be captured better in models. But, but there is one thing, and I, I want to bring that in a point next when we talk, there's one thing that this model that, you know, recognizes, and that is two more burden. However you cut it, the percent plasma cells, the size of the M spike, or the, you know, light chain abnormalities, they're just talking about more cells. It's just a burden of cells. And that is a recurrent finding on every single one of these models. So let me, I mean, I'm going to ask a very, very, very basic questions. Basic, basic question. What do, you, what do you both disagree on? Because it seems to me that you are aligned that you both don't treat smoldering multiple myeloma. If you knew which patient is going to progress fast, yes, you would. But what you're telling me is there's no model that is perfect to predict that. So... As somebody, again, I'm not a myeloma expert. I mean, you know, lymphoma is close enough to myeloma, but but it, it seems to me that you're both agreeing that there's no, you don't treat it, right? Well, well let me make we a it, oh, that, okay. make a, I'll make a stronger statement to see if Rafael disagrees. Uh, this, this is my stance. Uh, yeah, so I don't think uh, outside of a clinical trial right, right now, uh, we should not be treating smoldering myeloma based off the 20 to 20 criteria. Um, these, though, are in our NCCN guidelines. Uh, it is recommended uh, that this could be done. I strongly disagree with that guideline. I think it should be removed immediately. I think it uh, has the potential to cause a lot of harm 
lots of physicians like myself who there are certain diseases we don't see a lot. We consult the NCCN guidelines because we trust them and uh, myeloma experts write that. And I can clearly see someone in the community who sees maybe one smoldering or a few a year, look it up and be like, okay, this is now what we're supposed to be doing. I argue that's dangerous. I want that removed actually as soon as possible. And then we can talk more maybe later if we have time about um, some of the current trial landscape in the smoldering field, uh, um, especially the single arm phase two studies uh, with not so great endpoints and what they're looking at. Uh, um, so th those are my beliefs right now on smoldering myeloma. And I think you know, what Raphael's doing and some other myeloma physicians are doing is the bulk of our research right now needs to be done in smoldering is better prediction, dynamic, those types of things, genetic studies, really better figuring out this population um, because this is too big. This is too big of a decision to get wrong. Uh, treating asymptomatic individuals for really an indefinite amount of time uh, with toxic, expensive therapies. So those are my feelings. Uh, let's see what Raphael agrees or disagrees. Yeah, no, I, I think um, what 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 I was going to say, and and this would be a way to to think about this. Like um, as as we were chatting about this back and forth, uh, like Aaron was saying, listen, I what he just stated, right? I don't think we should be treating smoldering myeloma. And I said, why don't we come into this more? Not necessarily as a debate because I don't think it's black and white. I, I, I certainly don't. But I, I say I think a, under some circumstances, it could be a reasonable thing to do, and I'll tell you why. Uh, uh, but uh, you know that's that's sort of an you know an important. And B is I want to poke some holes in the confidence of saying that we should not be treating smoldering myeloma, and I'll, I'll make a few of those arguments as well too, because I think it you know if if you take an approach if you say well we're just going to focus on the guidelines that becomes a pretty much a deterministic of what the sentence or a statement should say there. And, and the point is taken. I mean, people might decide, like Aaron was saying, you know, this guy in some community who only sees a smoldering every two years is going to start treatment on the patient. And if, if, if the conversation like we're having right now is not occurring, which will, will not occur, then his, his argument is like, well, there's, you know, there are some patients that are going to be harmed. Um, it, that would have to be quantified, though. And I, I would say that you know, you could also argue that uh, as much as we have the commission, we have the omission, right? So we're going to have patients that are not going to derive potentially the benefit of early treatment, and more so because what we benefit? don't have we don't have we like the shown benefit. We have I'm not sorry? shown benefit. We have not shown benefit with early treatment. Well, let's 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 just 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 talk, talk about, about that. Yeah. There's no barcode that tells you, you know, a you're dealing strictly with a smoldering case, and I, I that's the one thing that is critical, right? Like, is this patient smoldering or not? I can tell you, I, I hear radiology reports all the time. There's a couple of lytic lesions. Is that a smoldering or is that an active myeloma? I see a PET scan where there's increase in the bone marrow. So it's, it's easier to talk about it conceptually than it is to live, you know, in the, in, 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 in the, in the practice. So, so and what Aaron is saying, which is, which is true, I mean, it depends how you want to take that, right? So you would say, well, the, the Spanish study shows PFS and overall survival. Now, Aaron is going to say, and rightfully so, well, can you use that data for overall survival, right? Then we don't have data for overall survival for the ECO study. Uh, but those are just two models, uh, 100 plus patients. We're not talking about thousands of patients of any clinical trial that would tell you this is, this is, this is what you need to do, right? In 2002, we were at the NCI with Rich Fisher, lymphoma, you know him, chatty. So he said, you guys in myeloma, like you give yourselves like medals for being so heroic that you never start treatment too early. But you should ask yourselves if you sometimes treat too late. And, and you know, I, I think that was, that was a moment where a lot of the thought process started going. It's like, well, you know, is this, is this, is this something? I mean, he was saying like, you know, 
you just can't wait for that long. And I always say we're like pirates that in the old movies, they wait until the ships are together and then you go fire, right? And you have all that destruction. The same is true for smoldering. I mean, when do you wait and when have you waited for too long to start treatment? So that's the point of not necessarily that everyone should be spared of, of, of the treatment. Your point is well taken, Aaron, as far as the, the guidelines. And I would never even argue with that. In fact, my practice is not necessarily driven by guidelines at all. But your point is someone who doesn't see myeloma is going to make that decision with which I agree. Ah, oh, goodness. You guys confuse me more than I, uh, I thought oh. I would be confused. I'm trying, I'm trying to under... So I, I think, how do we differentiate between different types of smoldering myeloma? So the 2220 is a criteria that is one of the criteria, what I'm hearing, to, that suggest at least my ability as a clinician to predict which patients of smoldering myeloma might progress sooner rather than later, right? I mean, one of right. the other criteria, right? So, um, and when you take that as a group, that's true. That's one question. I mean, the data right. is pretty well so, valid. So I have a patient, I come to you to see you and I meet two out of three of these criteria, maybe three out of three, whatever. Would any of you treat me? I, I would not. I would, as Raphael, I think, does similarly, would follow you closely at the start. And then, depending on how things are going, uh, determine my further follow-up. And, of course, you would get, if you were 2220 in my clinic, you would get a, a thorough workup. It already included the bone marrow, but would probably get a PET or advanced imaging um, and, uh, um, and close scrutiny. Uh, once it's deemed that it's not active disease, I would follow you closely. And then, seeing how you do, space things out. So, but, but you know what, I mean, Raphael asked a question that I, I'm, really made me curious, Raphael, because I, I think it's a great question and I'm not sure there is an answer to it, but so you do a good workup for me, right? Yeah. Because I have the 2220 and you see a couple of lytic lesions on the, on the bone survey. Uh, am I still smoldering? Well, no, if you have active bone disease, you know, uh, um, no, if there's FDG avid lesions, a few of them, um, you're, 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 I'm treating you as my alone. Is that what you do, Raphael? So, so oh. uh, yeah, I mean, is that appropriate? What? It depends. I mean, I, I actually look at all my PET scan. I look at all the images. I, and you tell a radiologist myeloma, you get a skull x-ray, they're going to find a lytic lesion. I'll tell you that. I'm not disparaging any radiologist, but they're going <laughs> to look very carefully. And they're going to have a hard time, time telling between a venous lake and a lytic lesion. So I actually never use skull lytic lesions, unless they're obvious. I mean, if you have a two-centimeter punched out lesion, yes, of course. But small ones, no. The PET scan is not that easy either. I mean, you, you just look at the marrow signal heterogeneity. You see that in the MRI as well. Do we have all these classifications for patterns? So it becomes freaking uh, chatty. Actually, if you take the argument one step further, I, I want to get back at some point to the idea of tumor burden. That's, that's, that's a point that I want to put together for a conversation. But, uh, you know, you, the criteria changed in 2014 with International Myeloma Working Group where they identified what I think were those patients that in the original curve of the paper by Belkyle essentially were, were, were the very high risk smoldering. So patients who had two, two or more lesions on an MRI, 60% plasma cells, or the, you know, the extreme abnormalities of the free light chain. And, and essentially, you know, people said, you know, the risk is so high, it's, it's 80% over the next two years that we might as well start treatment. Well, even that criteria is controversial. I know a lot of myeloma experts that don't go alone by using serum-free light chain, because you know we, we have been monitoring patients for a long time with the elevated serum-free light chain. But you know you're playing with fire when you have an elevated free light chain because you know a person goes into the hospital, they get you know 
die with a you know CT scan or they get dehydrated out in a hike, and before you know it, you have someone who has renal failure. So, so, so it's a, the same argument we're having. I just expanded the scale of what we're discussing. But you're playing fire with treatment. The second you treat that patient, if they're young, it's RVD and an auto transplant. So this is a huge freaking decision. Uh, and I actually, I, I do follow, I do follow some of my serum free light chains. I, in my clinic, I've had some for now over a few years that have not progressed. It would be called active myeloma based off the two. And I do suspect they will need treatment maybe at some point. Um, but my, the crux of my argument is that I, uh, even if we, you know, if this treating uh, any of these things that are now, we are said to treat for smoldering myeloma or even the slim crab criteria, that serum free light chain, then we should be able to show it in a trial that we're benefiting patients. Um, meaning giving the same therapy we would give at symptoms, uh, giving them early for an indefinite period of time, uh, that needs to be shown. What also needs to be shown is if in that observation group, that is being watched, the time they progress, they need to be getting those same good therapies that we would be giving. Uh, and if we're not, then we're, we're kind of obscuring our, 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 our survival and what, what, what's truly benefiting these patients. Oh, no, well, and again, in the ideal world, we would have tons of trials, right? So I'll give you an example. In 2005, I we wrote- We have tons of trials. We have tons of smoldering trials. No, oh, which are that we, great have, right we don't have enough information anywhere to get close to, yeah. the, to the reality. These are small trials. I mean, by, by, I mean, and let me, let me just throw in a, a wrench, which I haven't thrown into any of our conversation, heterogeneity of the disease. We know very clear that the, the high-risk patients don't respond as well to IMIDs. Yeah, so if you're going to put a high-risk patient in LEN alone, like we did in 3806, the benefit is going to be suboptimal. So is that a patient that we should be treating differently in a smaller trial? Or we're just going to say, we're going to treat with LAN every patient. So you, you would argue, well, let's do the trial. Yeah, of course. But it would be great to have clinical trials. I wrote one in 2005, RBV plus or minus transplant. And you know what happened? That trial never went forward. It's a lot easier to, to kind of imagine what we might do with trials than actually be able to conduct the clinical trials for, for a number of reasons. Uh, but so you just have to make your best determination based on the data that we have available. Okay. If we bring 10 myeloma people into this conversation, Rafael, yeah. um, 10 Mayo, outside of Mayo, Europe, US, wherever, what, what, what is the consensus in terms of approaching smoldering multiple myeloma? I, I guess I just want to try to get to is there a smoldering multiple myeloma that walks into the room that you and Aaron would agree this person needs to be treated or it is all gray where you just have to, I don't know, exercise your clinical judgment and take a leap of faith that hopefully I'm not over treating. And it doesn't seem, listening to both of you, it doesn't seem that there's a patient today that you both will be treating for sure but certainly there are patients that they will walk in the room where you would think about it. That's what I'm gathering. I'm trying to simplify things to listeners. Yeah, yeah. So there, I, I think the, the first part of your question was, is there consensus? And the answer is no. Within an institution, there's no consensus. Within my institutions, you're going to find a range of you know, opinions about who should be treated or whether it's proper to be treated or, you know, or not if you're smoldering. And if, if, if I think about all the names that I think of myeloma experts, I can tell you, oh, that person is more in favor or against of treatment. And, you know, each one of them with potentially good arguments, but I don't think there is a consensus. And right now, I would say it's probably more prevailing that it's better to be judicious than to start treatment. I would say that's probably a more prevailing you know, opinion 
throughout the myeloma community. And yeah, people don't want to see complications, but they want to get close to the point that you have some good degree of certainty that complications are coming. So, 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 so that would be a case. Now, the second question, yeah, I don't, I don't think I would ever walk into a patient room right now with what I know, you know, May of 2021, that I would walk chatting and say, oh, based on what I saw in the labs, this person must have to start treatment. They have a small ring. Do I consider it's reasonable for someone to start treatment? And do I consider sometimes it's reasonable to do that when, you know, seeing a patient that comes to us for a second opinion? Yes, I think there are circumstances where I think that would be reasonable. Aaron, that seems, I mean, I think, I think Raphael agrees with you. You agree with him, seems to me, 90% of the time. I think all what we're saying is that there are patients that probably are an exception to the rule, and you have to exercise your clinical judgment to make that decision. What's wrong with that? There isn't. I mean, the exception to the rule, which I don't think can be figured out in one visit with one set of values, which I think we both uh, agree on. My argument, though, is that the myeloma community, uh, I think, at least based off guidelines and what I see on Twitter, has moved, though. I know there's disagreement, has moved to this general acceptance that it is okay to treat on 2220. And some of the trials being designed, even the randomized studies, are not using observation as the control. If it was still that uh, unclear, these new phase threes that are looking at treatment indefinitely with expensive drugs, I would hope that it would be observation as the control arm, but they're actually using Revlimid as the control arm. There's an enthusiasm of phase two studies. I wouldn't enroll any smoldering patient on a phase two study. I mean, an interventional phase two study, um, but we have phase two studies uh, uh, looking at, you know, the uh, triplet induction, stem cell transplant maintenance, two years of therapy. Um, so I think I'm worried the way the field is going and that we soon will be at a point where it will be more accepted to treat these patients without truly knowing the benefit of early treatment. So there are two things. I think one thing Aaron is saying, if there is a clinical trial, Raphael, for smoldering mm -hmm. myeloma, Aaron is proposing that the standard arm should be observation. It's okay. It's totally appropriate to ask the question of early therapy, but you have to have an observation arm. Do you agree with that? You know, I, I think it's reasonable to have it. I'm not going to go as far as saying that every arm needs to have that because, you know, people that already are in the boat and which, by the way, I should, you know, allay concerns by Aaron. I think in the myeloma community, I don't think most people are in favor of treatment of smoldering right now. Um, and, and I can see, I can see your point again. The guidelines is a very important point, but I, and you're going to find people that are going to argue for this. And, you know, there's multiple debates in this regard. I, don't, I wouldn't say the prevailing opinion is that people should be started on treatment with smoldering in the myeloma community. But the trials that I'm, the trials that are being done, I mean, there is a randomized trial right now uh, that is Dararevers Rev mm -hmm. uh, uh, for smoldering. Actually, it has the right endpoint, overall survival, but it has the wrong control arm. So why are we, if, if we haven't, as you said, the, you, you were saying the, the biggest people in the field are not sold on this yet. Um, why are we... No, I, I wouldn't say the biggest because, you know, there's people like, you know, Sagar, who's fantastic, very thoughtful, who, you know, I, I and I understand he has his heart very close to the treatment of smoldering. Uh, I don't know where Mary V stands and Mary V Mateos, of course, you know, the, the, the queen of myeloma, she led the very first randomized trial. I haven't heard her talk in favor of everyone needs to be, you know, treated in smoldering. I think she probably would speak with the same tone that I'm speaking regarding the smoldering. Now, of course, you have to do the trials to be able to move forward and, and to prove this, right? I, and I called them before. This is, this is a very tough area to do clinical trials because of the, the number of patients, the follow-up you need. I mean, overall survival and smoldering is like, you better start that when you're early in your career. 
because, you know, even if we take myeloma patients, newly diagnosed myeloma patients, we're looking at, at uh, you know, easily with optimal treatments, we're exceeding eight to 10 year survivals now. So that's going to be a long haul. So, if this, so what, if what's wrong? so good, we should be able to show it. And then I'm asking you, then why I, I'm arguing that we should not be running these trials that are not observation is the control. I would not open them at our center. I actually would advocate against them. And I don't think we should be enrolling, opening these investigators. But, but if, you see, if, you see some, if you see someone who is in the mindset that LEN is the standard, that it would be unethical or whatever you want to call it to not offer LEN a little mite to I'm asking you what you uh, the patient think, population. think those studies should be. Do oh, you think you, should be you, observation uh, studies right now and the randomized observations, or no, I mean, so, randomized studies with interventional arms in both. So, so A, I don't consider them wrong. I don't consider them unethical. I probably wouldn't open them at my institution because of the reasons I alluded, because I, I certainly, I'm, I want to shy away from research. And, but, but I think they address not all the questions, but they address important questions. In that case, the one you're referring to is whether intensification of therapy is better. And I'll tell you why this is important. If you look at 3806, right? Three, what was the response rate for 3806? You ask yourself the question, this is why burden is so important. 50%. I mean, we would never use treatment that is 50%. The only reason we're having this debate of this conversation is because what we really are asking is, is it worthwhile to give potentially toxic, expensive, unproven treatment to smoldering patients, right? But if, if, if we had a treatment, and let me just finish this argument. If we had a treatment that, you know, you go through a month of therapy with minimal complications, let's say a month of Dara KRD. Let's just use that as, as a wild choice. And you know that results in, you know, in, in significant improvements. People will say, let's do it, right? So right now we're just trying to gauge the value of what we have at hand with the ultimate potential you know, benefit for patients. That's essentially what we're discussing in May of 2021. Otherwise, the, the, you know, the debate would be pointless, right? So you asked me, would I, would, would I, you know, do I think it's reasonable? I think it's reasonable to run those clinical trials. Why is it unreasonable, Aaron? I'm not saying it's unreasonable to maybe use Dara Rev as an interventional arm because yes, I don't need any study right now to show in asymptomatic individuals Dara Rev will keep the M protein down longer than it will just Rev. We've basically shown that in advanced stage myeloma. It's unreasonable because we're still we're skipping over the most important point. The whole point of treating smoldering myeloma: will these patients live longer? Okay, um, or will we prevent? serious, and we can go into the nitty gritty of the endpoints in the, the, e the ECOC study, uh, serious morbidity with early treatment. We know for sure that we are gonna be inconveniencing these patients. These are toxic. There's, you're not getting away with, they're, they're toxic drugs uh, um, and there's expenses. And you know, I, I, I just, we can't jump the gun on this. And I, I definitely think the community is jumping the gun on it. And I'm, I think that none of these studies should be open right now with two interventional arms. Nor should the single arm phase two studies. I think. So, they Aaron, I think I think a better. I mean, I, if if people were treating off label or off study on this, I'm a hundred percent with you. I think you're going to find a variety of opinions of whether a trial is is. And, and also, as you know, I mean, we all have the eternal journal club mentality, right? We do the trials and we assess whether it was the right control or not. I actually think it's reasonable to do these trials. I don't want to do them. I like I said, it's it's fraught with so many challenges. But do you think, so let me turn, do you think we will ever have a trial that will address overall survival and smoldering? And if we can't, then should we just not do clinical trials at all? No, we could have. The, the, the ECOC study, uh, the, if they hadn't crossed over the, the, control, uh, the control arm to treatment and they just would have continued to follow those patients, um, we, well, maybe they wouldn't have shown survival. But 
or that maybe they would have. And that's, that's which which really ECOG yeah. which which study just for listeners. Sorry, my the uh, I'm blanking on the number. The one where it was it was the Lonial study with Revlimid yeah, versus ECOG, observation. E three A O six. So that was uh, single agent lenalidomide, not dexamethasone yeah. versus observation for smoldering. Uh, but let me let me ask. So let me just throw in the the, the tumor burden here. So I, my job today was not to say that we walk out of this conversation and say we have to treat smoldering, but at least to have Aaron scratch his head a little bit and say, boy, this is this is problematic. So every single every single prognostic you know scheme for for smoldering relates to tumor burden. So more cells, more risk of progression. We know that that means, uh, you know, the, the most logical conclusion, there's there's certain propensity of having more cells a stochastic process by which you're more likely to progress. So if you could safely reduce the number of cells, could you reduce the risk of progression and, and therefore prevent the patient from having a complication? So knowing what we have this trial now, the 306, we have the CSAR trial, which was a Spanish study, right, that, that, that we talked about. Let's say you're a 50 year old and, and you're facing, you know, you're engaged in your profession. Let's say you're a doctor, 50 year old, right? And you have 30% plasma cells and you have an M spike of three and clearly no crop criteria. And the person says, you know, Dr. Goodman, I just cannot stop my practice. I want to reduce the risk that I need to face a stem cell transplant as part of myeloma therapy. Can I try lenalidomide? What would you say to that person? I would, I would say that we do not know that this early therapy um, will prevent, will make you live longer. I know for sure when you start this therapy, that could cause serious adverse events and you'll now become a patient when you otherwise really weren't. And then I will discuss the randomized study that you just mentioned showing that um, in a very small group, which wasn't the overall population of that study, they used different criteria for their high risk. I think all you needed was like a light chain ratio greater than eight. So we're not talking about 2220, but they went back and looked at the 2220. If you looked at that, I think that it, 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 for like the, half the patients had bone fractures uh, 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 as their endpoint. The other half were either anemia or uh, hypercalcemia, both things that are really reversible and won't interfere with your practice as a physician. Uh, sure. uh, that the numbers are too small to show that this will do what but, you want. Let me play the patient, but Aaron, I mean, tell me, can you quantify what are the risks for me taking single agent rap without dexamethasone? And let me just make that decision. How would I go about making that decision? Well, it's important for me. I can't quantify it, but I can say you'll be on a pill. You're on a, a chemotherapy. Uh, there is a known risk of secondary cancers. There is a known, you'll need lab work. Uh, you'll need a lot more stuff that you wouldn't have other had, and it will cost your insurance 50 grand a month. You know, So th that's what I can say for sure. I can't really say anything else. I can't say we'll do any of the things that he's asking for it to do. So let's say Dr. Jones down the street is telling me this is something I should do. You say I'm not going to do. I'm going to yeah. go back to Dr. Actually, Jones. Go fire up with Dr. John. Uh, you think Dr. it's reasonable because I read the 3806 study and I think it's the right thing for me. I'm making my decision that I think I want to start treatment. Do you think it's unreasonable? I trust your opinion. I, I, I would think it's not the right thing to do. Um, you can discuss with other physicians as there are other physicians that do it and there's disagreement like there is in all aspects of medicine. Yeah, but I'm say, asking you if it's unreasonable. Is it unreasonable if I decide to start with Dr. Jones, Mike? I, I, I kind of think it is. <laughs> I, I that's think fine. I mean, that's part of the conversation, right? The yeah, way. I would say I would say it's unreasonable right now to offer uh, uh, this type of intervention uh, at this point, I would say it's unreasonable. Well, and th this same patient comes back and said, listen, but I know that you can cure MGUS. And you go, wow, we've never seen any clinical trial that cures MGUS, but 
We know we, we functionally cure MGUS because when we transplant amyloidosis patients, most of which have an MGUS clone, they, you know, some of them get cured. The same is true for poems. So if it's more likely that you guys have been able to do that in the future, why not for smoldering? And, and I mean, I, maybe you know more about this. I don't know. We cure MGUS and I would say, wow, we cure MGUS. We cured something that wasn't needed to be cured. Amyloid no, but is but I'm saying choice. pathologically, you have an MGUS. Most patients with light chain amyloidosis have less than 10% plasma cells. So you actually cure MGUS. They have a protein. Well, that's not MGUS. That's, that's amyloid. Right? I'm sorry? That's not MGUS. It's amyloid. Well, I, amyloid is MGUS with a bad protein. That's all there is to it. Well, I mean, it's, it's is it? I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a disease. We're calling amyloid is a disease. MGUS is not. It's something that we just kind of discovered. Well, but okay, let's, 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 but you, you, you acknowledge that you have long-term control of amyloidosis patients' clones that you don't have to see them again. You're a transplanter. Yeah, I, I, yeah, but we could have long control. I mean, it, it's the same argument. We have long control of many things with it doesn't help the patient. So who cares? Of course. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, I can control something that doesn't matter. I mean, it might matter on that person, but we don't know yet. So, oh, yes, I could control. I might be able to control this protein and you'll feel better about things. But whether that truly mattered with the hard endpoints, which is what we need to focus on. And if, again, if this is such a great thing, I argue we should be able to show this. Uh, 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 I don't think we will with, with the way the trials are going, but we should be able to show this if this is such a good thing. It is reasonable. Yeah. I, I think it's going to be very hard to show conclusively one way or another. And that's going to be one gap we're going to have for many years. So a lot of people are going to have to interpret the data that we have available, right? Sorry, Chatty, you were going to jump no, in. No, I was going to say, I mean, I, I listened. I mean, I, look, I mean, one of the things I've always argued about is I don't think we can answer every question in medicine with a prospective, properly powered, randomized control trial. I mean, there is a reason why we hopefully can use our expertise, clinical judgment, so forth. There are certain things absolutely, conclusively, you can answer and have been answered, but there are always these things that you just honestly can't, can't always answer. And, and I think it's going to be left up to you guys who are seeing these patients to make that determination. But we could, we've answered this in CLL. We've answered this in, we've answered this in follicular lymphoma with early treatment, which, uh, which hasn't been shown to benefit. I don't see why we're just accepting that we can't answer this question. That's where I disagree. I, I think this could be answered if the motive was there and we really wanted to answer it, it could be answered. I don't think we should, we can accept it. I don't think answer. overall survival, Aaron, I think it's really impossible to have overall survival as an endpoint, just because even if you have actual multiple myeloma right now, and please, both of you correct me if I'm wrong, the median survival for, multiple, for an active multiple myeloma patient is close to 10 years um, in modern therapy with transplant and all of these newer therapies. So now you're taking smoldering, which could be possibly 10 years even before. So you need to have a study that is powered necessarily for to show it to a 20 years overall survival benefit. And who knows during those 20 years, what newer therapies and innovative therapies that come in. I'm just saying, newer, I think you could study it, but I'm not sure overall survival could be a primary endpoint. Regardless of the newer therapies though, if we can just show with anything that you know, I understand that 20 years from now, the standard care is going to be different, which is also another reason why we don't need to treat people early because by the time they need treatment, we'll have better treatment. But, um, you know, uh, if we can just show with any intervention uh, that, 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 that it's helping, then at least the principle makes sense to me. Uh, um, and I'm more accepting of it. So, they, you know, they did it with follicular lymphoma with maintenance for rituximab. Uh, they, it, the 20, 15 year follow-up, there's still no difference between delay. So you can 
you can show this. You know? can, can, can both of you come up with a phenotype of a patient that walks into your clinic with a smoldering multiple myeloma where you would recommend Revlimid to? I'll start with Aaron. Well, I, I can't. So 100, 100%, there's no phenotype, there's no patient that walks in your room with smoldering multiple myeloma, you would say, you know what, I think you would benefit from Revlimid. No, because I don't know if they're benefiting. I mean, if I really thought they have myeloma or really need treatment, I'm just going to start treatment like I treat myeloma. No, smoldering, we're talking smoldering. Well, if I thought of smoldering, if somehow that existed where I go, this person really is going to benefit, I would treat them like I treat my active myeloma with a triplet therapy and plus or minus transplant. Same question to you, Rafael. Yeah, so sure, Chatty. First of all, what the, the point that Aaron makes is excellent because one of the thoughts is the smoldering exists. Should we split it into two or three categories? The smoldering that is really myeloma, that is like very early, the budding of myeloma versus, you know, I think a smoldering with 15% plasma cells. I almost like to tell patients they have MGOS instead of smoldering. You know, one day is 15, the other one is 9%. So that was the point. That's a, that's, that's a very important one. But if I had a person that came to me, if I had a, uh, a person that presented with a high count of plasma cells, not quite 60%, who came to me and said, listen, I have no high risk markers. I have a bone marrow that shows hyperdiploidy. And, and I don't want to stop my life for therapy. I want to do everything I can to diminish the risk of me progressing. That's a patient where I would be willing to write for, for, for a prescription for rabbit as it is. So Aaron, comments on that? Would you, you would disagree with that? I mean, you said, you know, 50, you know, but now we're just, you know. <laughs> I, 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 I was going to poke holes in his confidence. So. I know. I, I, I think, I, I think we actually do agree a lot. I, I think. We agree know, on more than we disagree. I, I, my main argument, which I stand by is, and I will reiterate a hundred <laughs> times, is 2220, we should not be using as our sole criteria. Aaron, he did, he did get you thinking. You did, you did. No, I, I've had those patients. You know what? I, I, I have, I know anecdotal reports stink, but I, I have a patient where I've had this discussion. He really did not want treatment under any circumstance, actually. So I actually was considering it. I was actually just treating as an active myeloma. And he, he's two I, I years think, later, I, fine, I, you know? I think, I think, you know, I'll go back to one thing that Rafael really brought up that struck, uh, st struck me, which I thought is really the, the tumor load, because I think you could have the smoldering myeloma with a little bit variation in the tumor bulk, if you will. And it made me think that if there is a patient with smoldering myeloma, but yet have a higher tumor load than another patient with smoldering myeloma, that's the patient probably I would want to treat. But the question actually that comes to mind then is what Aaron brought in. Do I treat like an actual myeloma sure. uh, versus just a revlimid alone? That, that, that's also another point of discussion. Well, you know, and as I tell my patients, everything we say is here from the doctor's side, right? I repeat that myself at every single visit. The one thing that scares me the most of all of what we're doing, having said that, is the protosome inhibitors because of the consequences of the protosome inhibitors. So if, 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 if that same person came a 50 year old type A triple plus personality, super prominent, it goes like, I know everything there's to be known. I want you to treat me. I would still think it's unreasonable. At that point, I would think it's too much to go with a combination with artumumab or something else. But I would say, I would want that person to avoid a protosome inhibitor because of the consequence of A, cardiorenal toxicity, uh, you know, wh whatever that percent is for, for carfilzomib. But also if you don't, if you don't 
treat an alpha myeloma, you, you, you'd think that neuropathy is not a problem. And long-term neuropathy is a big, big deal for my myeloma practice. So I would say my, my, my least favorite story is a doctor, you saved my life, but I still can't feel my feet. So, so you know, if, if, if I was to step it up now, if I had the ability to do the clinical trial, I probably would study something like the Maya regimen uh, to avoid protosome inhibitors for, for, for high-risk small brain. Well, I mean, I, I think, uh, as I know, I want to be very respectful of your time because we are getting at the top of the hour and I know you have uh, other things you both want to attend to. But um, but I'm honestly noticing a little bit more agreement than disagreement, frankly. And, and, and honestly, this tells me a lot of times that Twitter does not do debates justice, frankly, because it's just very difficult with 280 characters to, to really go into the details of this because when we sat down and we talked about all of these things there is more agreement and and rafael you did get aaron to scratch his head he did he did scratch his head i did see him scratching his head a little bit well he's still in his office and it's sunday when we're recording he's saying what am i not doing being home so that may be part of that. I just rounded I, on the impatience. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I agree that next time he's in Arizona, we'll have a, a beer together. But I, I think love to. it, we learn a lot more from the conversation and the nuances, right? We, we just like scratch the surface on some things. I, I didn't even tell you the patients that I have with 1114 that are saying, are you not going to consider venetoclax? I'll say that and Aaron will go ballistic. He's going to say, are you crazy? Of course, I've never done that. But it's not an it's, it's not an uh, unscientific thought. Let's let's leave it at that. I do think also there's one thing that I really think is really important. I think it goes without saying that. Well, uh, obviously, Rafael sees all myeloma, and and Aaron sees some myelomas. Certainly, both of you see more than what the community oncologist sees in terms of myeloma. So I, I do have a, a, a soft spot to what Aaron commented on yeah. the NCCN guidelines, frankly, because I do ima- I can imagine someone who sees you know five smoldering myelomas a year and, and might really do think might not put as much thought as you both would in something like this. So I I it does. I would say Aaron made me scratch my head about the NCCN for sure. I, I think that's a fair point. And that's why we've worked imperfect as they are on MSMART as well too. It's, it's geared more towards like, okay, we all agree that if there's a recommendation for someone in the community of what to do, this is what you would do. Uh, but, 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 you know, guidelines are fraught with so many limitations. And, and I agree with his point as I did from the beginning. Does MSMART recommend Revlimid maintenance? I, I don't know. Uh, for maintenance? Yeah. For, Not maintenance, for- sorry, excuse me, uh, for, for smoldering. You know, I don't think we do have that yet, but in fact, this, we, we can we can check it out later. I should know that, but I don't know. Would <laughs> you write those guys? No. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I, I plead anyone listening to this and you and the myeloma community who shares your beliefs that I think we need to be stronger voiced if not jumping the gu- These guidelines, yeah, you're right. They're not black and white, but I think they are really, they're taken for insurance approval. They're taken for many things. And, and a lot of people think it's okay. And I, I, as you said, we're not comfortable yet with it. I, I, I think we need to expand that voice. Any final thoughts before I let you guys go? I think we, we've covered a lot. I hope listeners really enjoyed this. This is a friendly, nice discussion. Nobody's going to mute anyone. Nobody's going to block everyone. I love that. Um, uh, I'll block you, both of you, but that's a different story. Of course, no, but we learn a lot more from going into the details than, than, than you know the categorical statements. So thank you, and thank you, Aaron, too, as well, for, for the opportunity. And uh, I want to, by the way, I mean, I want to be in Arizona when you both uh, uh, are going to get together. So we, okay, we need- just bring your back club out. 
Chatty. Oh, for sure. That's it. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, hopefully we resolved and educate everyone about smoldering myeloma. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this very nice debate. As usual, my guests have taught me a lot. And for that, I am grateful. And I hope that you learned also from them about smoldering myeloma. And you learned that there are always points of disagreement. And that is actually okay. It is fine to disagree on certain things. Science is never perfect. We need to take care of patients despite imperfect science. We need to be able to provide recommendations and treat patients despite the fact that we don't always have a prospective randomized controlled trial that answers the question that are, we are being asked. It is very critical to put that front and center into what we are trying to accomplish. And I believe my guests today were able to articulate the difficulty in making some of these decisions as they pertain to smoldering multiple myeloma. And I'm very grateful for the time and effort that they put into today's episode. You can really direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan. That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You can follow me on Twitter and let me know how I'm doing and provide any suggestions or feedback. You can also send an email to shadinabhan.oo at outlook.com and visit my website, shadinabhan.com, where you can see various features, but also you can message me through the website. I really appreciate all of your support. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, refer a friend or a colleague, and write a review. I'm going to leave you with a, for, with a saying pertaining to uh, arguments, but I, I don't know actually who said that, but it's rather important, and I like it. I believe that the pursuit of truth and right ideas through honest debate and rigorous argument is a noble undertaking. Until next time, take care.